0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Five Buy, your five-stop shop for Quickfire board game reviews. On this episode, Ruth cries over a pile of onions in Hoyle Dock Mau Mau, Sarah manufactures Victory in Fantastic Factories, Christy scrambles to identify hastily drawn artwork in Pictomania, and Rule thought he was out but then got pulled back into the godfather Corleone's Empire. But first, Meeple Lady searches for the secret to immortality in Abomination, Arab Frankenstein. I
1: don't play too many monster-themed board games. Unless it's in the Cthulhu world, and even then I'm referring strictly to Arkham Horror or Cthulhu Wars, monster games don't usually draw me in. That is, until Abomination, the Era of Frankenstein by Plaid Hat Games. This worker placement game is strategic and fun, and surprisingly oozes with theme in a way that works. In Abomination, scientists are working in Paris to collect muscles, organs, blood and bone, and the occasional animal part when they really, really need it. And I say collect with air quotes because what you're really doing is raiding hospitals, morgues, cemeteries, and other suspicious Parisian locations for the freshest cadavers required to create your very own monster. Each player receives a player board to place your resources and three dials that keep track of your humanity, reputation, and expertise. They also get a character card, which gives you variable player abilities as well as two assistant and one scientist meeples. Later in the game, as your reputation increases, you can add an additional assistant, or trade them out for scientists too. Acquiring more scientists is important because locations on the board have placement restrictions, and they show which type of meeple can activate that location. Some are either or, but the majority of them are reserved for scientists. If you don't have an available scientist during the round, you cannot place your meeple there. Also, some locations give you more benefits if you place your scientist there instead of the assistant. Abomination goes for 12 rounds, with 4 phases in each round. At the start of each round, the event phase happens, and the first player draws from a deck filled with events for the round and encounters, either immediate or when a player goes to a location. The city phase is when players place their meeples, one at a time, on the player board. In most Eurogames, when a meeple is placed at a location, The location is closed to the rest of the players for the round. This isn't the case for Abomination. Players can pay money to bump a meeple, so that the location will be available for them to use. There are only three meeples that can be bumped in each round in a four-player game, and those meeples go to the bump track at the bottom of the board. The bumpee pays a person who is being bumped one franc or two francs if it's a third and last bump for the round for a 4 P game or pay nothing if you're bumping yourself, there is a lot of bumping that goes on in the middle of the night. When everyone passes or have no more legal moves to make, the lab phase occurs. This is when people turn in the resources to make body parts according to the resource and expertise requirements on the player cards. Complicated body parts, like the head, require more expertise than, say, a leg, During the lab phase, players can also flip the switch to shock their monster to life, or those shocks can inflict damage, which can degrade your body part if you have enough damage to it. The dice rolls during this phase can be punishing, but there are research cards you can gain at the Academy, which can mitigate those dice effects. Plus, gaining expertise will give you the option to use more favorable dice. The last phase of the round is the reset phase. This part, I think, deals with the most clever mechanism of the game. On your player board, When you find a cadaver, the cadaver card will give players either expertise or body parts. If you go to the hospital, you will receive stage one or stage two body parts. If you go to the cemetery, you'll get less fresh parts, more likely stage three or stage four parts. During the reset phase, all your unused body parts will decompose one stage. This timing element is important because when you build body parts with less fresh components, you will net fewer victory points if you haven't used your body parts by stage four or preserved your materials from the lab phase, you will lose them. The reset phase also wipes available cards on the board and moves the round marker forward. Abomination is great for horror fans and heavier gamers alike. Even though the box says 60 to 120 minutes, I cannot imagine ever getting through a game in under two hours. 12 rounds take a while and there are a lot of different decisions. I love the variety of locations on the board, including the dark alley, will you get the freshest body parts, and a lot of them, for the price of some of your humanity. The events and encounters keep the rounds different each time, and the objectives also help factor into the decisions you make throughout the game. The artwork in Abomination is gothically gorgeous, and I appreciate the diversity of cast of characters. The game is not light by any means, so you'll need to devote some time to playing it. The game really comes alive as people start assembling their monsters, and hopefully your creature is alive at the end as well. And that's Abomination, the Heir of Frankenstein. Thanks, Plat Hat Games, for sending me a copy of this game. This is Meeple Lady for the 5-by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye!
2: When it comes to party games, it doesn't get much more classic than Pictionary. The activities of drawing and guessing other people's drawings work well for a wide range of ages, and the whole process is interactive and entertaining. But only one person, or a max of one person from each team, gets to draw at a time. Depending on how you're playing or which round you're on, the other team might be doing all the playing while everyone else watches. In 2011, Vlada Khvatil designed a drawing game loosely inspired by Pictionary called Pictomania. The first edition of Pictomania was published by Czech Games Edition, and the art is by Andreas Resch. A second edition came out in 2018 with art by Toby Allen, Zuren Medding, and Michaela Zarolova. In Pictomania, everyone simultaneously draws different things and then guesses what all the other players have drawn. You have some guidance in the form of cards that are displayed to everyone on a rack with symbols on it. Each card has a numbered list of items in a category. For example, one of the cards might say apple, orange, pear, banana, pomegranate, peach, kiwi. Each player is dealt a symbol card corresponding to a card on the rack and a number card to tell them which item on the list to draw. So you might get a square that corresponds to the fruit list and the number six which tells you to draw a peach. Drawing and guessing occurs all in a single frenzied round. You get points for other players guessing your drawing correctly. So as with any drawing game, you want it to be as recognizable as possible. As soon as you're done, you can start guessing what other people have drawn, even if some players are still drawing. The players who finish guessing first are rewarded with, you guessed it, points. So you want to be quick, but you also want to distinguish your item from the others on the card. Everyone has a hand of numbered cards in their player color that they use to make their guesses. So if you think I've drawn a stoplight, which is item number three on a list of traffic-related items, you would put your three card face down on my pile. As soon as you're done guessing, you take a token with points on it. The round is over when the last token is gone. Depending on how competitively you want to play, you can either put out enough tokens for everyone or do a musical chairs version in which one person runs out of time to guess and doesn't get a token. Each player tells the group what their drawing was and flips over the stack of cards representing the player's guesses. You hand out point cards to correct guessers in the order in which the guesses were made. Faster guessers get more points. When everyone has shared their drawing, you write down how many points you got and return everybody's cards. The game is supposed to last for four rounds, but as with many party games, you can play more or fewer and call it good if you want. Here's what I like about Pictomania. It's best with five or six so you can have everyone at the same table instead of splitting up into two games. It's very engaging, as you always have something to draw and multiple guesses to make. Even if you finish first, it's fun watching the others scramble to get their guesses in at the end. And as long as you have at least one person who is confident with the rules, it works as an approachable family game or party game. Also, there are four different difficulty levels of cards, so you can cater to whatever your group wants. Here's what I don't like about Pictomania. When you're guessing, you don't know who is working off of which list of items, so it's very possible to make a wrong guess, look at the next person's drawing, and realize you've just used the card you need. You only have one card of each number, so one wrong guess has the tendency to turn into two or three. On the other hand, if you try to avoid this by evaluating multiple drawings at once, Not only can you experience the dreaded analysis paralysis, but also you miss out on points you could be scoring by making your guesses right away. By now it is probably evident that people who don't like feeling rushed probably won't care for Pictomania. I feel that way sometimes too, but in my opinion the game design and the charm of the drawings make up for it. There are also those moments when you freeze up and think there's no possible way to draw what you were given. For example, one of the level 4 cards gives the following options. Order, Eternity, Theory, Chaos, Fate, Idea, Wish. It's both stressful and hilarious when people get these cards. Finally, while I do think Pictomania can work for less experienced gamers, the procedure of making all of your guesses, flipping over the cards to score, and so on can be a bit much to wrap your head around at first. Lots of folks will appreciate a practice round to get comfortable with how everything is going to work. Pictomania shows that even party games benefit from good game design, packing a lot of activity and interaction into a short time. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at d6cmarie. Go draw something.
0: In 1950s New York, different crime families vie for control of the city. Illegal goods, laundered money, and turf wars are common as one family looks to establish their dominance of New York. Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's look at The Godfather Corleone's Empire, a 2-5 player game from designer Eric Lang with art by Karl Kopinski and published by Simon in 2017. Combining worker placement with area control, set collection, and plenty of take that, The Godfather Corleone's Empire is a 60-90 minute game consisting of two main phases, family business and turf war. During the family business phase, players take turns placing their thug or family member figures onto a business space on the board and performing the associated action. Actions include collecting illegal goods such as booze, guns, money, or narcotics, completing one of the public jobs or a private job from your hand, or stashing away your money. After all players have placed their figures, the turf war phase begins. The board is divided into different New York City neighborhoods, and players attempt to control them at the end of each round. Every time you place a figure in a neighborhood, it counts towards the turf war, and the player with the most figures in each neighborhood controls it and gains a control marker. Of course, someone playing a car bomb card or drive-by-shooting card may clear their enemies out of a neighborhood. After four rounds, players gain money for each area they control, and they gain additional money if they have completed the most of each job type. The player with the most money is the winner. The Godfather, Corleone's Empire is a street-level game of the violence and corruption in the Godfather universe. You won't be making business deals or forming intricate alliances like the Don or his son Michael. No, this is more along the lines of Luca Brasi, may he rest in peace, and the street violence and business shakedowns that are used to build a criminal empire. I have to admit, I wasn't totally enamored of the game after my first play or two. My love of the Godfather film was clearly affecting my judgment, since I was expecting the original movie on the tabletop. I had to get over some of the generic-looking cards and the fact that Don Vito Corleone was only on the box cover and in the rulebook. Quotes from the movie are used as flavor text, but really have no influence on play whatsoever. Actually, Vito is also on all of the cards, but it does nothing for gameplay except remind you that you're playing The Godfather, Corleone's Empire. But after a few more plays, I started to appreciate this Eric Lang design. Like Blood Rage, which I reviewed in episode 47, The Godfather, Corleone's Empire, is more than just mindless smash-and-grab area control. It's a neatly crafted and rock-solid worker placement game. You're sending your family members and thugs to each neighborhood to perform actions and also to set yourself up for the area majority of each end-of-round turf war. Completing jobs is basically set collection. If I want to complete a drive-by-shooting job, then I have to turn in two guns cards. I get those cards by going to a space on the board that has the gun cards. Besides the starting spaces, these spaces differ depending on what businesses are open at the start of each round. What I really like are the two types of workers everyone has. Thugs, who get to perform an action in the front of the business, and family members, who get to perform the actions in the back of the business of all adjacent areas. There are also special workers that you can bribe into being allies for your family, like the corrupt mayor or police captain. Each one has special rules for it, and you gain these during the end-of-round bribery phase, which is basically an auction. And normally I'm not a big fan of Take That, but here it's tied in perfectly with the crime theme. If I perform the car bomb job, then all of my enemies in one turf are tossed into the Hudson River, allowing me to muscle into the area. I love the player action in this game. There's nothing more satisfying than tossing your opponent's minis into the river on the board after a well-timed drive-by. It reminds me of dropping opponents into the big volcano in the downfall of Pompeii. There's lots of evil laughter. I do have some gripes about the game, though. As mentioned earlier, the generic-looking illegal goods cards look like clip art and are a major letdown. Anytime I draw one of those cards, I can hear Vito Corleone saying, What have I ever done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? And while the game features more thematic touches than the other Godfather game I previously reviewed in episode 37, A New Dawn, it's still more of a generic mafia game than a full-blown Corleone family board game. Still, the smooth design and epic feel of those turns when you're car bombing your enemies and tossing your opponent's figures into the Hudson River, make this a game I'm always willing to play. In most games, the final round usually plays out like the last act in the original film. This is where you settle all family business, with a bloodbath that results in lots of figures sleeping with the fishes. Every game that I've played, all of us at the table eagerly wait for that moment when everyone starts completing jobs that kill off each other. This may not be an essential worker placement or area control game, but The Godfather Corleone's Empire is a solid game that most gamers will enjoy. And for my fellow Godfather fans, this is the board game for us. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 By. Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A.
3: 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here talking about a favorite filler. Every time I attend Origins, I look forward to finding out what interesting small box games my friend Kopak has brought with him, as part of his infamous walking game library. There's always something I've never heard of that I fall in love with, and this year it was Hjuldok Mau Mau, also known as the Crying Onion Game. This is a 3-6 to six player card game from designer Leo Colovini that might just leave you in tears. Published in early 2019 by Ravensburger, this oddly onion-themed game is currently only available in German. So as is my usual, I picked up a copy from Amazon.de, but it was inexpensive and came quickly, so don't let the idea of international ordering dissuade you if you live elsewhere. The game itself is a deck of 98 cards, consisting of 7 suits, each with cards valued from 1-7. to two copies of each. Players have a hand of four cards and a scoring pile in front of them, the cards in which score face value when the game ends. Players get to play a card into their score pile, provided it matches the color or value of the top card. But if the card they choose to play matches color or value with a neighbor's score pile, then they must play on their neighbor's pile instead. So players spend their turns attempting to play cards that match their pile and theirs alone to avoid giving others free points. Should a player be unable or unwilling to play any of the cards in their hand, then they can instead play a card face down on their pile, showing the crying onion on the back side. This resets their pile pile, as anything can be played on a crying onion, but it does come at a price. When all cards have been played and the game ends, before you add up your score, you have to count how many crying onions you have in your score pile. The number of crying onions corresponds to the value of cards that are now worth zero points. Have three crying onions? Well, then all your threes are worth nothing. Have nine crying onions? Well, now your sevens and your twos don't count. Because, of course, it wraps around. And so this means that during the game, you're weighing up whether to play a crying onion or give someone else the points that a card brings, making those decisions a lot trickier. Especially if you can't remember just how many crying onions you already have. The game also comes with a variant included that adds a set of action cards, and these definitely add even more chaos to the table. When played, these affect the top cards of one or more players' scoring piles, switching them around or even flipping them over. It's a very small addition that doesn't require a lot of extra teach time, but will dramatically increase the unpredictability of this already pretty unpredictable game. I usually play without them just because the base game is so enjoyable by itself, but they're a fun option to have and I certainly enjoy it when they come out. Huldoc's art is adorable. Marek Blaha has illustrated each suit with a different member of the Allium family, everything from a grouchy spring onion to an adorably clumsy pearl-onion trio. And then there's the poor crying onion on the back of the cards, who's hard to resist awing at as he sobs amidst kitchen equipment. In addition to being super cute, the different art for each suit also means distinguishing the differences of color isn't required, preventing any problems resulting from color blindness or poor lighting. But honestly, the art is great, the cards are great, but my favorite aspect of the game's production is a throwaway gag. Inside the box is a tissue, ready to wipe away any tears those pesky onions might cause to be shed. Healdoc is clearly not a game for when you want to plan and strategize. You're flying by the seat of your pants as every play made by your neighbors changes your options. But if 15 minutes or so to play, I don't need long-term planning. And listening to the groaning of other players when I give them points, but in the process prevent them from playing the card they wanted to play, well, that's half the fun. The Onion Game, as my friends and family call it, is a crowd pleaser. It's easy to teach, players only ever care about their immediate neighbors, so whether you're playing with 3 or 6 it really doesn't feel very different, and so far, every group I've taught the game to has requested to play it at a later event. So if you're looking for a small box card game that feels familiar enough to those who know games like UNO, but that comes with some tricky, tense decisions and a little more interesting gameplay, well Huel Doc Mau Mau is well worth searching out. Now I'm off to dry my eyes and count up my points, but until next time, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F.
4: Thanks for listening. Before I talk about Fantastic Factories, I want to talk a bit about the rulebook. I've had a run of bad experiences lately, trying to learn new games with badly written rules, and it really detracts from the game experience. A bad rulebook leaves you feeling confused and frustrated before you even begin, makes games take longer while you puzzle out confusing rules, and can lead to arguments over rule interpretations. But as frustrating as that's been, I'm glad I had that experience because it helped me appreciate how good the Fantastic Factories rulebook is. The rules are simple, with straightforward explanations and clear illustrations. It's so well organized and so easy to learn the game. There's no specific credit for rules writing in Fantastic Factories, so I assume the credit goes to game designers Joseph Z. Chen and Justin Faulkner, and they have achieved something wonderful here. Now that I've waxed rhapsodic about the rulebook, does the game live up to it? Short answer, yes, very much so. Fantastic Factories is a game about using cards and dice to build an engine. In each round, first is a market phase where players take turns drawing a single card from a face-up market. Then comes the work phase, where players each roll four dice and use them to gain resources, use the resources to play cards in front of them, and use resources and dice to activate cards. Many cards let you trade resources for goods, which count as victory points, and most cards are worth victory points as well. There are only two resources, metal and energy, and 78 different cards you can build. Although the rules and possible interactions are simple, finding the perfect card combination to get your engine going is the real fun of Fantastic Factories. You could get a card that gives you lots of energy and another card that lets you trade energy for points. Or you could load up on cards that let you roll extra dice or change their value, and then get cards that give you points for two or three matching dice. And if your cards can't do anything with the dice you rolled this turn, you can always use your dice on your player board to get resources or draw more cards. You can choose to do your actions in any order, and a great turn of Fantastic Factories goes like this. I'm using this 6 die on the Power Plant card to get 6 energy. Then I'm spending 4 energy to get a point, and over here, spending my last 2 energy plus a 4 die to get a point and a metal. Now I'm using the metal on the Robot card to get an extra die. Woo! I rolled a 6. Using that on the Nuclear Plant card to get a point and an energy, and so on. Chaining card abilities like that is so satisfying. And the best part is that this phase is simultaneous, so you aren't waiting while other players work out their actions, and player count doesn't have that much impact on how long the game takes. I've played Fantastic Factories with two players and with four, and the main difference is that with two, cards in the market refresh more slowly. But if you want a particular card, you're much more likely to get it. I know a lot of people don't like quote-unquote multiplayer solitaire, but I love that there is no negative interaction in Fantastic Factories. The only interaction at all is that a few cards give you a big benefit and everyone else a smaller benefit. Fantastic Factories also has a solo mode, and it is terrific. You play a normal game against an automaton who ignores resources, just collects cards and rolls dice to collect points. When I saw that the automaton rolls five dice every turn, I have to admit I cringed. I was expecting some tedious, overly complex mechanism, but I couldn't have been more wrong. The automaton's turns go so fast that I literally thought I was missing something at first. I reread the rules a couple of times to be sure. No, really, that's it. I'm impressed that they managed to come up with a solo mechanism that feels challenging and engaging and is so easy to do. At this point, I would normally mention caveats or reservations, but I don't really have any with Fantastic Factories. There isn't enough color contrast in the colored dice, but since you only ever use your dice in your own tableau, this has no impact on the game. It would even be okay if you ended up with four dice that weren't the same color. As long as each player has four dice, that's all that matters. Aside from that, I love all the art and design choices in Fantastic Factories. Cards are decorated with colorful, appealing illustrations of buildings and robots, and I will be sorely disappointed if they don't make an enamel pin of the trash compactor card, which kind of reminds me of Baltimore's Mr. Trash Wheel. Chen is credited with the art and graphic design, which I think has a lot to do with how easy the rulebook is to use. Well done on both counts. Now, Fantastic Factories was officially published in 2019, but won't have a full retail release until January 2020. But you can buy it right now from a few retailers or direct from the publishers, Metafactory and Deepwater Games. There's also a print and play if you're feeling industrious and don't mind printing and trimming a lot of cards. But should you buy Fantastic Factories? Tastes differs, so I'm not going to say that everyone should, but kind of yeah. Let's put it this way. If you like engine building, and you're looking for something quicker than a heavy euro, a game with a snappy pace, easy to learn and teach, that feels fun and fast but still gives you a lot to think about, then you should. And if you're a game designer struggling to write your rules and you want an example of how it should be done, then you definitely should. And that's Fantastic Factories. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah ovenall.
0: You've been listening to The Five Buy. Follow us on Twitter at five Games. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash 5Bygames. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or head over to our website, FiveBuyGames.com. From all of us at The Five Buy, thanks for listening.
2: The Five By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.